You're right in D.C. with Gail Trotter. Gail Trotter, host of Right in DC. Today, I'm so excited to be speaking with Matt Lewis. He's a senior columnist for the Daily Beast, and he's a CNN political commentator. I met him recently, and he's also an author. And whenever I meet someone who's written a book or many books, I want to dig into their uh, writing and understand their worldview and where they're coming from. Matt is the author of Too Dumb to Fail, How the GOP Went from the Party of Reagan to the Party of Trump. Matt, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, Gail. Thank you for having me. So this book came out in what year? So it actually came out in January of 2016, and then I did a paperback version with a new intro um, after Trump became the nominee, but before he won the presidency. Um, so it's a, you know, I feel like it was really kind of ahead of the curve. I think a lot of the stuff that we're still talking about, in fact, people are still writing books um, with sim similar themes to what I wrote a couple years ago. And what would you say the main thesis of the book is for those who have not had a chance to read it yet? Well, so first of all, my my thesis is that conservatism is a thoughtful intellectual philosophy that is utterly defensible. Um, however, over the years, it has become dumbed down and more populist. And my book was really a warning to conservatives and Republicans not to go in that direction, not to go actually not to go in the direction of, say, for example, Donald Trump. Part of the reason for that it was demographics. Uh, and I actually think that although Trump did win in 2016, some of the demographic concerns I had uh, actually just manifested on Tuesday night, the midterm elections. Uh, and including what happened in the suburbs, college-educated women fleeing the Republican Party. So that was my warning back then. Of course, the Republican Party promptly ignored everything I told them. <laughs> <laughs> so here we are. So you want to do a little autopsy on the midterms, but you've already done it in this book. And it, you think maybe it needs a wider audience because uh, you care. It seems like you really care about the Republican Party. Is that right? You know, that's absolutely right. And look, some people, because I've been so, you know, probably starting around mm, 2010, I started writing pieces that were critical of what I saw happening in the conservative movement. I, I'm one of the few people who, who saw the Tea Party as not, I'm one of the few conservatives who saw the Tea Party as not an unalloyed good. I saw some bad things there, some some populist nationalist sentiments there that I believe turned into Trumpism over time. Now, I realize the Tea Party folks were actually more in the Ted Cruz constitutional conservative mold. But nevertheless, I saw some of the rumblings there, the the anti-intellectualism, the politics of the, the identity politics, the victimhood politics, that stuff I didn't like. And I started warning about it and writing about it uh, around 2010. And uh, there's a danger, though, when you are somebody who is policing your own side, who is criticizing your own side. Uh, people call you Eeyore. They say that you're virtue signaling. I argued that I was much more the reason that I was writing all of these pieces that were critical of the right is that I cared about the right. Like, I really don't care or I don't have much I don't have high hopes or expectations for the left. 
Um, I don't really want to save them, <laughs> but it was conservatism <laughs> that I wanted to save. And that's why I spent all this time and energy writing, writing that book. Well, there are many different directions we could go in because you raise so many great points. I feel like in reading your book, I was reliving a lot of the history of the conservative movement that I personally experienced as a child of the 70s and the 80s, and also going back into the intellectual underpinnings of it and, you know, back to Bill Buckley and back to Edmund Burke and, you know, even further than that. Uh, but but you raised that point about Tea Party conservatism. And something that jumped out at me in your book was you said that there have been these moments in time where people who might have been leaning conservative or were not engaged in politics suddenly were energized by something they saw as a threat to you know, their understanding of what freedom and liberty was. And this was a really interesting point you make. You made in the book, you referred to Pamela Geller. And I was surprised that you brought her up, uh, but you said, and, and I didn't actually, I'm very familiar with Pamela Geller, who uh, is very outspoken against radical Islam and the treatment of women. And she organized a Draw Mohammed cartoon contest in Texas, which inspired two radicals to take guns to the cartoon contest. And they ended up getting shot and killed by police. But the thing I found really interesting in your book, and I'd like you to expand on a little bit, is that you said it was 9-11 that awakened Pamela Geller. And and I wasn't familiar with that, but that was the, yeah. the moment in time. And um and I think I think a big part of your book is kind of contrasting people who uh, become sort of celebrities in the conservative world versus the people who have a deep-rooted philosophical understanding of the principles behind conservatism. No, that's absolutely right. I spend a lot of time on that, talking about the kind of the entertainment wing of the conservative movement, as well as how some of the most prominent quote-unquote conservatives today really don't have a deep, they're not really wedded deeply in conservative philosophy. Now, you may be wondering if you're listening why I'm writing about Pamela Geller. It's 2018 now, but when I started writing this book, it was probably 2014. Um, and so I think she was probably a more relevant political figure at that moment than, than she is right now. Um, but, I, but I saw her as an interesting example of somebody who, um, and she has talked about this herself, somebody who basically was a liberal um, and was, I would say, almost radicalized by 9-11. Yes. I, mean, I know that sounds harsh, but she was shocked and awakened. And, and I think that for some of these folks who were not politically active before, there's kind of a zealotry of the convert. And there's also a remorse. They feel somewhat guilty that they had not been politically active before. And, um, and so she, she didn't know who Osama bin Laden was, right? Right. I, I, I think that's, if I'm, if I'm recollecting, uh, I, I think that's true. And so now they're trying to make up for lost time. <laughs> and I think there is the zealotry of the convert. And the interesting thing that I think I invented was the idea of comparing these people, the Pamela Gellers of the world, to immigrants. They're, um, yeah. so, so think of immigrants coming into a country. When immigrants come to a new country, if they come to America, they bring, um, they bring excitement and energy and an entrepreneurial spirit with them. They bring some new ideas um, and that could be very healthy. But 
we also believe that they should be assimilated, you know, that that, you know, they we we have to actually have things that we believe in, a shared shared creed, shared ideas, and that immigrants can bring in new energy and ideas, but they also need to kind of be assimilated into into the culture. And this is basically, I use that as an example of what happened in the conservative movement. I think you have these immigrants, uh, intellectual or ideological immigrants, like a lot of Pamela Gellers, people who were not politically active before 9-11. They really they 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 didn't read Russell Kirk or Edmund Burke or they weren't <laughs> well versed in the Peggy Noonan speeches of Reagan. Right. They didn't have that shared culture that we have, but they were shaken awake on 9-11 and, and they had to get involved. The Republican Party was the obvious party for them to join if they wanted to actually do something about right. radical Islamism. But these immigrants did not assimilate and they brought with them some baggage and some problematic things uh, that we are now kind of dealing with. Well, it's interesting, too, I think, uh, when you kind of go through a lot of those Tea Party candidates and you talk about Christine O'Donnell and uh, Sharon Engel and you talk about some of the Senate losses from from people who came through the Tea Party, I don't want to say training grounds, but the the birth of that movement. And you say that uh, in your book, you really talk about how that was a difficult time. And, and then you also talk about the shutdown. And I have to confess, I was one of those people who truly believe that the 2014 midterms were delivered to the Republicans as a result of the shutdown orchestrated by Senator Cruz. But you had a different approach on that. You, you, you didn't say that it was because what I thought where the Republicans were able to distinguish themselves on Obamacare, they, they, it wasn't technically a shutdown, but there was a big dramatic media moment around this supposed shutdown orchestrated by Senator Ted Cruz. And my feeling was that that set that different differentiated for the American people where the Republicans versus the Democrats stood on Obamacare and healthcare. You say in the book, that it was because they saw that it was an ineffective strategy and they didn't try it again. So who's right? Well, it's probably impossible to know uh, <laughs> definitively who's right. Um, now, keep in mind, this shutdown actually took place in October of 2013. Yes. And so I find it hard to believe that a year later, voters would be saying positive, whether it's positive or negative, that they would be casting their vote based on the shutdown a year later. Um, I do think that there's a good case to be made that the shutdown cost Ken Cuccinelli his gubernatorial election. In fact, Cuccinelli yeah. believes that to be the case, as does his campaign manager, Chris Lasavita. They believe that the shutdown cost them the gubernatorial race. I, my theory, is that in a way Ted Cruz did the Republicans a favor because um, there was a backlash against the shutdown and that chastened Republicans and they avoided that kind of, of provocative um, action, which I think is, is, you know, look, I'm okay with being provocative if, if there's an end game, like if it gets you somewhere, but I think they avoided that kind of, of uh, you know, maneuver during the actual 
2014 election year, and they ended up having a very good year. So I, I actually argue the shutdown did help them, but but not in the way that Ted Cruz would would imagine. Well, it's interesting too. You talk about the intellectual history of the conservative movement. And you have a counterpoint that you make about President Reagan, who was frequently called an amiable dunce after uh, Clark Clifford made that reference to him. It was repeated ad nauseum. There was this idea that he was this Western cowboy. He was a man of the people. And I think you build a very good case about how deeply intellectually rooted President Reagan's conservative philosophy was and how coherent it was, how it hung together properly. Could you explain that a little bit? Oh, yeah, no, thank you. Um, I think that I think that now history is probably on my side on this. I, I don't think it's controversial anymore to say that Reagan, although not an, not an intellectual, was an incredibly intelligent and highly read uh, person, and especially as a politician, that he was somebody who thought very deeply and cared very deeply about ideas and uh, and, and, and knew a, a lot about political philosophy. Um, and I quote several sources, including Bob Novak in, in his book, The Prince of Darkness. Uh, he talks about an instance where he met, um, he and Roland Evans, I think his, his old partner, met with Reagan early on and tried to, you know, ask him some gotcha questions. And Reagan was like talking about Bastiat and some fairly obscure French, you know, economists and philosophers. <laughs> and 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 Bob Novak walks away saying that, you know, Reagan knew more about this stuff than he did, you know. Yeah, that, he said and, he had to go, look it up, right? Yeah, he had to go back and look it up. <laughs> and this is actually confirmed by multiple. That's one example. I, I had a few different sources. Um, and then there was also a good quote that I got from from Charles Krauthammer, Krauthammer um, where, you know, Krauthammer was at, working at the Washington Post at the time. And he meets with Reagan, you know, in the Oval Office early on in the administration. And Reagan just wants to talk, tell stories and talk about movies and and Krauthammer later came to the conclusion that this was like the brilliance of Reagan, that he was this really smart guy who didn't want you to know how smart he was. That as as you know, George W. Bush had this malapropism about being misunderestimated. And <laughs> I think that's what Reagan wanted to be. And I think uh, I think it worked. Now, the the other point, though, that I make is I think that there actually are unintended consequences to this. I think that that Reagan really benefited by being under, underestimated. He he really benefited by the fact that people did not realize how deep, how thoughtful, how smart, how well read he was. Um, he liked to play himself off as sort of just a regular guy, a Joe Sixpack. I believe though that there are that there's a downside to that, and how's that. that? that some of the anti-intellectualism that has arisen on the right, and it didn't start with Reagan, you know, Spiro Agnew talked about the nattering nabobs of negativism, negativism you know, yes. pointy-headed intellectuals and the Nixon thing. So it's not a new thing, but I think Reagan helped propagate the idea that conservatives, if just good old horse 
you know, horse thinking or what, what's it called? I'm thinking, uh, you know, just sort of, of, uh, of, of common sense right. is the way to get, you know, to the way to get things done. You don't really need all that fancy learn it, book learning. Book learning. <laughs> and uh, that's not really true. And Reagan actually didn't, that wasn't his model. You know, that's not really what he did. He actually did go to school um, by virtue of reading all of these books and meeting people. And, 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 but I think he gave the impression that you could just sort of, you know, nap, take all these naps, you know, during meetings yes. and stuff. And yeah. then luckily you would kind of win the Cold War by, you know, by luck or something. And I was reading, finishing up your book last night on the Excella train from New York City. And I remembered a part earlier in the book where you were talking about when Reagan was giving these speeches for General Electric all over the country, he would bring a suitcase full of books. And instead of going to the cafe car and knocking back drinks with other businessmen, he would sit there studying the books. And you also had a little anecdote about someone in his press office wanting to release a list of nonfiction books that President Reagan was working on, and he refused to let that out there. So that kind of, I think, supports your assertion that President Reagan did not want to be seen as thoughtful or or relying on, I guess, the accumulated wisdom of intellectuals as much as he really did. No, that's that's absolutely true. I, it's documented that um, I think it was his press secretary at the time um, was upset with these stories sort of portraying Reagan as an amiable dunce and wanted to release all the books that he had read or had been reading. And Reagan said no. He wanted people to think he was just reading these Louis L'Amour uh, <laughs> <laughs> cowboy sort of westerns and, or, you know. Uh, Western novels and stuff. So he propagated that. And um, there were other people who helped him perpetuate this image. One of them was Lynn Knopfseger, who, um, Lynn, this is early on, Lynn Knopfseger had been a, um, a newspaper man, and he became Reagan's aide and kind of press guy when Reagan was running for governor of California. And there's a famous scene I recount in Too Dumb to Fail, where there's going to be a reporter who comes and like kind of spends the day with Reagan and does like a profile bio piece or something. And Reagan comes out of, um, you know, out of the house, out of the ranch, wearing like riding English riding boots and like, you know, a helmet or something. <laughs> and Knopf Sigler says, no, you know, go out sends him back in to put on cowboy boots and a cowboy hat, you know? Right. And so this image of the cowboy was assiduously cultivated as well. And I think it certainly helped him, you know, in terms of the the optics. And I like how you said he, he was able to be kind of the man of the people, but at the same time, he was cosmopolitan. He was very polished because he had that those Hollywood connections. And I think this is really prescient in the discussions we're having right now. You talk about how when Ronald Reagan and Nancy came to D.C., you quote someone else saying the Reagans and their people had come to join Washington society, not scorn it. Yeah. And then the next paragraph, you say at least one cause of Washington's current dysfunction is that politicians no longer build strong friendships 
and relationships with colleagues on both sides of the aisle, and this is the part I really want your, your reaction to, or the people who cover them. So anyone, I grew up in you know the D.C. area, so you, you understand about the kind of Georgetown cocktail uh, party circuit, and I, w- I was never part of that, but you know, you certainly are familiar with that and this idea that the politicians who come here, they kind of run in the same social circles, their kids go to the same schools. Uh, and, and that is certainly true with the press people who cover them at the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, on, on television. And so I think I'm curious if you have a reaction to this, because uh, certainly things between the media and President Trump have been very high caliber, high um, reactivity, I would say. President Trump came to Washington promising to drain the swamp. And I think it's been my my observation of it. It's been a lot of mutual dislike and distrust. So uh, we saw recently CNN has filed this lawsuit against the White House because of one of their reporters losing a press pass, a permanent press pass. Uh, would you say, now you wrote this book and update in 2016, talking about that is part of the problem. Um, do you think, and I'm going to fra- try to phrase this very carefully, uh, do you think the American people want the politicians to be sort of frat- fraternizing with the people who are covering them? Or is there an expectation that there is a distance so that there is a fairness, so that there is a um, dispassion or a objectivity that you might not have if you're best buddies with the people who hold power? Well, look, I I think both extremes uh, can be dangerous. Um, You know, there was a time when the there were there was a time when when reporters were actually writing speeches for Franklin Roosevelt. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a time when, you know, reporters knew that Jack Kennedy was having affairs and they yes. never wrote about it. Yes. There was a time when reporters wouldn't dare take a picture of Franklin Roosevelt in a wheelchair. Right. You know, and maybe there's actually something good about that. I I don't know. We could debate that. Right. But there certainly was a time when there was like this good old boy buddy system where um, the public wasn't really informed about things and 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 journalists, you know, had this um, intimate relationship with politicians. And that's a sort of a cronyism that doesn't necessarily benefit the public or inform the public. So like, that's a bad thing. I also think, however, right. that um, although there is an adversarial relationship, inherent between the press there should be an adversarial relationship it should also be one that has civility and mutual respect so i think we've gone too far to the other extreme reagan i think really got it right um he ran as an outsider but he uh, as soon as upon coming to washington he he essentially uh sought to cultivate and seduce the media as much as he could Right. Um, Now, they had incentives not to go along with that. Some of it was that the media, even back then, were very liberally biased. They didn't agree with his policies. Some of it is just 
You know, if you if you're Sam Donaldson, you want to become famous, you want to make a name for yourself. A great way to do it is to to, you know, ask tough, hostile questions of the president and try to play the gotcha politics game. But Reagan very clearly, although he ran as an outsider, attempted to co-opt and um, and get good press from from the media. And it worked. You, you know, the media were liberal, but he still became the great communicator. And, and he employed all sorts of techniques and methods that would help him get good press and good publicity. And I think it really worked. Now, the question is, though, should Donald Trump try to replicate that? I argue that that he should, that it's not impossible for a Republican or a conservative to get good press. Reagan was able to do it. Um, and you just have to be very, you have to be very good. Don't make mistakes. Use public relations techniques. Don't do stupid stuff. Don't say stupid things. I think that Trump could argue, well, the world has changed. The media are more hostile. Right. Um, they, they will not give us a fair shake no matter right. what we do. And now we have a way to fight back. Reagan didn't have Twitter. Reagan didn't have Fox News. If Reagan had had Twitter and Fox News, and if the media had been as you know biased against him as they are Impressive. against me, yeah. he would have done the same thing. I think that's an open question, uh, but it's an interesting one to talk about. Well, it's interesting because you do talk about the strong language that President used, evil empire, tear down this wall. I mean, he he could do the high notes and the low notes. You you have the the um, boys of Point, Point du Hoc, that speech in, I was excerpt of it in your book, you have this speech about the Challenger explosion. Uh, and, and then later in the book, you talk about the conservative movement's strange fascination with celebrities and how they kind of glom on to anybody. And, and you, you kind of make a joke that sometimes these celebrities are on the outs and they see this this connection with conservative political leaders as a way to maybe resuscitate themselves. And obviously you wrote this before Kanye was embracing right. President Trump in the Oval Office. I mean, talk about, you know, seeing ahead of time. Uh, so even our celebrity president, who is very familiar with all that, he he's subject to that too, wouldn't you say? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it's funny. Conservatives will say, oh, celebrities don't matter. They're, you know, they don't know what they're talking about, you know, but yet we love celebrities more than anybody. Ronald Reagan was a celebrity. Donald Trump was a celebrity. And I think we have like this almost like inferiority complex where we, we because because 99% of Hollywood celebrities are are leftists, Yep. Um, or at least, or at least, well, leftist probably isn't fair, but but liberal, um, lean left, certainly certainly Democrats, certainly yes. partisan Democrats. Yes. Um, we are so desperate for one of our own that like we will take the cast off, we will take the the B list celebrity, um, the guy who like used to be famous. I mean, Scott Baio, you know, I mean, whoever, Duck Dynasty. Oh, but happy days. I mean. Victoria Jackson, you, you, <laughs> you know, Richard Dreyfus, if he decides to be conservative one day, as I think he occasionally does, Kid Rock, I mean, you name it. We, I don't care what they did in the past. If Snoop Dogg wants to be 
you know, a conservative. He could probably be a senator. So, I mean, <laughs> we will take them. We love celebrities. After. I don't know. After his videos, he might have a hard time selling that. And I have to confess, Matt, that Taylor Swift broke my heart. She, I think people thought she was a closet conservative or maybe just didn't lean left. Yeah. Maybe she was just center. I thought she leaned right. And then after she engaged in the Tennessee senatorial election, I have to say that just broke my heart. Well, <laughs> I mean, I would say, I would past. say two things. One, she's under immense pressure from, yes. from the entertainment world to be liberal and to publicly come right. out on issues and she's mostly avoided it. And the second thing I would say is the guy she endorsed Bredesen, I think he said he would vote, he would have voted to confirm Kavanaugh. Right. So, right. I mean, if she had to, if she had to break your heart, this was the nicest <laughs> way to do it. I'm going to rest on that. <laughs> well, I, you know, you know she I, loves the players and, and they love I the game. No, so. I know. I'm just going to shake it off, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so my final point that I want to get you to share with us a little bit, I, I really don't like books that just identify problems. And they say the, the world, the sky is falling down. And if only we could go back to the Roman Empire or this glorious moment on Atlantis 2000 years ago, everything would be okay. Don't like books like that. Your book is the opposite of that. At the end of it, it gives really practical solutions to people who care about the conservative movement and care about the conservative uh, philosophy and want to share that with more Americans. You talk about how politics is the art of addition and not subtraction. And I like a lot of the suggestions that you, you give. And one of them, I think, is very timely given that now we've gone through the midterms. And so everyone's thinking about who's going to be running for president, right? And you talk about what is your purpose? What is your purpose in kind of the, the political world? And how do people find that? And you say not everybody needs to run for president. And as an example, you gave one of your favorite actors being Philip Seymour Hoffman. I'd like you to tell everybody a little bit about that. Yeah, no, th thank you. Um, so I, I really try to end not just on an uplifting note, but also on a note that that offered some insight or thoughts. And there are like different different ways that we can. There's like a macro level of how the Republican Party and the conservative movement could be better. And then there's the whole thing about like it actually starts with you, you know, with each of us. Right. And, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman was one of my favorite actors. And part of it was he understood uh, how to be a role player. I mean, he could star in a movie. He was Capote. And I think he got an Oscar for that one. I but but a lot of times you could watch a movie and you don't even know that that guy, is Philip Seymour Hoffman, he was a um, a role player and he and he could play these character actors and and be second or third fiddle and just steal the show but but in a way that um in a way where he's not trying to steal the show so he's turning in an amazing performance but he doesn't have to be the marquee star name and you know like one of my favorite movies is charlie wilson's war that's a classic example where um 
that's a Tom Hanks movie, but Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know, is probably why I love the movie so much. And the reason that that the reason I brought that up in the wake of the 2016 election was you had like 16 or 17 Republicans running, right. <laughs> running for president. Oh, my and God. That's just. That's just way too many. And I think part of the problem is everybody uh, wants to rule the world, <laughs> as Tears for Fears said. Like, right. nobody wants to be like, okay, let's just look at what happened in the midterms. What if Ted Cruz had said, you know what? I just got elected right. in 2014. It's too soon to run for president. You know what I should do? I should stay in Texas and travel Texas and try to really keep Texas from ever turning blue. Let's let's go all over. I mean, it's a huge state. We got to go to El Paso. We got to go to Beaumont. We got to go to Del Rio. And, and, and I have a special advantage where I could try to recruit Hispanics to join right. the party. Right. Um, that would have been amazing. What about Scott Walker out there in, in Wisconsin who just lost re-election to governor? What would have happened if he hadn't run? I don't know. Maybe, you know, so... I'm just picking on those two because because Ted Cruz had a very close race in Texas, too close for comfort, and Walker lost. And they both ran for president in 2016. Hindsight's 2020. But not everyone needs to be the star every single time. And I think that right now in America and in the Republican Party, especially what we have, uh, what, what we had was a sense that everyone had to like kind of reach for the brass ring. Interestingly, I think one of the positive things about Trump being the president and being such a powerful force is that that has actually been tamped down. It is his party for better or worse. And I think that um, that that the instinct where everyone has to kind of do their own thing uh, has been tamped down a little bit. And isn't that everyone's mother's fault because every mother tells their child, you too can be president one day, so... We should just yeah, lay it at there. No, it's, it's, <laughs> our culture, our society is very individualistic and increasingly individualistic. And everybody gets a participation trophy. And uh, there aren't a lot of people who want to be, you know, okay, how many kids want to be um, George Clooney or Tom Cruise versus right. how many kids want to be Philip Seymour Hoffman when they grow up? Right. And I think you talk also about culture a lot in the book and how conservatives, you know, the whole politics is downstream of culture. Do you think there is a way that can start, you, you talk about, you know, don't go be a conservative writer, don't go be a conservative this or that, just be the best at whatever it is that you decide to do. But I, I feel like there has been this bemoaning or wailing all the time that conservatives are not involved enough in culture. And I, I myself, don't really see a solution to that. No, I think there's a real debate uh, on the right as to what we should do. Um, should we try to infiltrate the mainstream media or should we write them off and create our own institutions and our own, um, you know, uh, architecture and universe? And um, I'm not sure what is going to win out. But the one thing I do know is I think that um, if you ever notice, like, like you don't ever want to go hear a Christian comedian, you know, right. <clears throat> they suck. Right. But you know who's a great comedian? Jim Gaffigan. Yeah. Really funny. And he's a devout 
well, I don't know how devout he is, but he's a practicing, <laughs> admitted Catholic. Um, and he's got like five or six kids and living in New York City, I yeah. think. So that's so like Jim Gaffigan is an example of a comedian who is a Christian, much better than a Christian comedian. And I think that this rule, whether it's Christian rock or whether it's a conservative writer, um, it's better to be a writer who has conservative instincts or a conservative temperament than it is to be a conservative writer. Now, some of us, and I'll include myself in this, have have had to have had to go that route, um, and why, that's okay. Why did you have to go that route? Why would you say you had to? Well, I think that there is a couple reasons. I think that it's in a way it's easier to break in. Mm. Okay, now th- and this could be a lack. Of, so so there's a couple of a couple of potential problems here. Maybe conservative writers are people who were not good enough to make it as writers. Or it could be that we were shut out of the um, yes the system, you right. know. And so, whichever whatever the case may be, I think that there is a ghetto. There's a political ghetto, and there's a con- there's a conservative ghetto. And um, I think that it, there's nothing there's nothing wrong or dishonorable about being a conservative writer. And I'm oftentimes described as one, and I'm, I, right. I don't think it's better than being called a conservative blogger, which is <laughs> which is what I'm also called a lot. Um, <laughs> that one I think is in in 2018 is a derisive is meant derisively. Yeah. Does anybody Whereas, know what a blog is anymore? <laughs> <laughs> we're all bloggers, sort of. Right. But none right. of us are. Um, there's like two bloggers left in the world, like Rod Dreher is, right. is a really yep. good one. Very yeah. few. Um, but. I think if you can help it, if you're out there listening to this and you're, you know, and and you're aspiring to kind of define who you are, like break in and be a writer who has conservative instincts. Like I think Joan Didion and David Foster Wallace and a, and a lot of my favorite writers actually um, were not political. They were not typecast as conservative or political writers, but a lot of their viewpoints were kind of almost um, sneakily, you know, conservative. Did you finish Infinite Jest? No, oh, no, hell no. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. Um, okay, good. But I, I'm, I have you know, it. But, but I have read a lot of his nonfiction. So. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Well, I do listen- have Infinite Jest on my on my bookshelf, <laughs> but I've not finished it. It's quite a whopper. It is an infinite book. Yeah. <laughs> I know that you tweeted, Matt, about a CBS Morning clip where they interviewed the new head of Planned Parenthood, and you made the comment, I wonder why conservatives feel like the mainstream media is biased against them. Can you explain that clip a little bit for those who haven't seen it? Yeah. So first of all, every time I see something really egregious, that's like the kind of liberal bias that's coming from an ostensibly mainstream outlet. Um, that I think they don't, that I think like it, it's so insidious, they don't realize how biased they are. Um, I will, right. I will, re- I'll retweet it and say, I wonder why conservatives don't trust the mainstream media. <laughs> and so, like, this latest example is a tweet from CBS this morning, which is like, you know, should be a vanilla sort of mainstream outlet, right? This isn't, yes. it's not even like Vox or the Huffington Post. Right, this is like right. CBS. And, and so, 
And their tweet said, everyday Planned Parenthood workers serve more than 8,000 people and more than 600 clinics across the country. Beginning today, Dr. Lena Wen takes over as PPFA's new president. She was previously Baltimore's health commissioner, and she's here on CBS this morning. So look, I don't care if they're interviewing the new head of Planned Parenthood. That's totally fine. But this kind of um, <clears throat> sort of hagiographic <laughs> like right. presentation, like would, they would never do this for the head of the National Right to Life or the Susan B. Anthony list. Right. Like, they would never. There's no version of this where they're like, and I'll give you like another example. Um, my wife and I went to see the uh, the notorious RBG documentary, right? Oh yeah, what do think? I love. We loved it. Really good, right? It was it was a good documentary. Learned a lot. Solid. Um, then smash cut to you know a month ago, we're sitting at a, at, a, at a different movie, watching the previews, and there's this new movie out. I think it's called Vice, and it it looks really good. Um, but it's about Dick Cheney and George W. Bush. And it's going to be really critical of them. I'm going to watch it. It actually looks like a really good movie, but it's going to be critical. Oh, keep and then an the eye next out for preview, it. the very next preview is like not a documentary, but a bio, sort of a biopic about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> and how she's like this woman who cracked the, the glass ceiling and her heroic battle to be, you know. And I'm like, I'm okay with this, but when are we doing the heroic story of Antonin Scalia, that scrappy son of immigrant of Italian immigrants right. who who rose to the Supreme Court? Like, when does that biopic get made? And you I know the answer breath. is never. It will <laughs> right. never be made, and that's what right. pisses me off. And they don't even realize how biased the uh, whether it's entertainment or news media. They don't even get it. They have no idea. No, they don't. And when you even have conversations with them off air, I don't know if you experience this in the various green rooms that you have been in since you have been a political TV pundit. Um, even what they say on air is more reserved than what <laughs> they say in the green room. So if you're outraged by if anyone's outraged by what some of these liberal commentators say on air, it's nothing. It's nothing in comparison to what they say to each other when they think everyone in the room agrees with them. Well, for me, I think it depends um, on who that person is. But yeah, it is interesting, some of the stuff that you get. And, and I think, again, the, the interesting thing is that it's, it, it, it's, I'll put it this way, like, if, if I were the head of like, the New York Times or CBS or whatever, I would be thinking, what's our, you know, CBS News or the New York right. Times? Right. I would be thinking, what is our number one problem? The number one problem facing our industry is not just, not just our outlet, but our industry is that people don't, half the country doesn't trust us. Right. And, and, and whether that's right or wrong, that's a problem. And how do we, how do we fix this? What steps should we take? How can we reassure half the country that they should trust us? I don't think anyone is really asking that question or, or taking that seriously. Um, <clears throat> and I think I understand why. It's Part of it's because they're not trying to preserve their industry. They're trying to beat their competition tomorrow. You know, they're not trying to make sure that 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 the news industry 
has a positive reputation 10 years from now, they're saying, how can we beat the Washington Post tomorrow to this? Right. Um, and so it's, it's sort of short term, short term thinking and, you know, persuading a conservative that already doesn't trust us to start reading the New York Times. That's a heavy lift. But if we can have a really hot story today to get more page views and sell more papers tomorrow, I'll keep my job an extra day. That's right. I think it's a short-term thinking problem. And I think sometimes when they have actual conservatives on their pages and not um, ones that will at least kind of believe a lot of the underlying assumptions that someone who's reading the New York Times, for example, has, they get a lot of blowback from their their base of readers. So I think it is a little risky for them to give a forceful uh, platform to someone who can really articulate these intellectual conservative principles that make up your book. And it, it, they get a lot, I think they get a lot of grief from it because a lot of their listeners don't want to think that the other side has any basis in uh, thoughtful uh, engagement of these issues or any different experiences that they have. And so I, I agree with your analysis of it, that it's short-term thinking. I think it's also, they worry that they will tick off their, their uh, loyal readers too much and they might go to Vice or Vox or, or something else that is harder left on the spectrum. Oh, I'm sure they get pushback. I will say this is one area where I think the New York Times does a really good job, actually. Um, if you look at their their columnists, I mean, I think Ross Douthit and David Brooks, and you get like Arthur Brooks in there sometimes. I see some really smart, good, thoughtful, conservative commentary in the New York Times. And I think it's the kind of commentary that actually might persuade some liberal readers, right? I mean, if you put, um, <clears throat> if you put like, I'm trying to think of somebody um, if you put like a, just a hardcore Trump supporter in the Times, not only would there be a lot of backlash, I, I just don't think it would be persuasive. But I think that like a Ross Douthat, for example, um, really does a good job of writing things that explain conservatism in an ironic way that might be persuasive to some, some New York um, Times readers. I think that is a great point. I would say that they should also have a vehement Trump supporter on their pages. I love Ross. I think he does an excellent job. I think he is very persuasive, very reasonable, very thoughtful. Uh, David Brooks, I think a lot of conservatives thought he was more conservative than he's kind of drifted now. Same with Brett Stevens, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning columnist. Brett Stevens is an amazing amazingly brilliant writer uh, and, and thinker, um, but he's he certainly is not in touch with the reason that Trump got elected. And maybe the answer to that is to say, well, if you want to read that, then you, you know where to go, but it's yeah. not going to be at the New York Times. I think, I mean, there are two people that come to mind that I think they should hire and they, they won't. Um, one, so, so none of these guys are like, Kool-Aid drinking Trump supporter. Right. right? But you don't want but, that. I agree. Then it's but like I think um, Henry Olson is yeah. somebody who, and he wrote this book called Working Class Republican. He's been on my podcast a bunch. Henry Olson is someone who, who 
he's not a Trump guy, but he really gets it. Sort of like a uh, like a Selena Zito type type situation. Yes. Um, and then the other guy would be Scott Jennings, my colleague at CNN, who um, is more of a Bush guy, but he um, I think he he's not hostile to Trump and he will defend Trump frequently. Right. They could at least go that direction. Right, but, right, right. Let's meet you know, halfway. <laughs> I think that would be helpful. Well, Matt, I have so enjoyed this time with you. We had the opportunity to meet at the Leadership Institute, and it made me think of it as I was reading the end of your book about, you know, get educated, get involved, uh, take the skills that you have and put them towards uh, the, the movement and improving things. And the Leadership Institute is a great training ground for that. Uh, as I said, you are a columnist for the Daily Beast. Your newest column is Trump Should Dump Pence and Run with Nikki Haley, which is a great, uh, interesting, provocative idea. If people want to read your content, what is your handle on Twitter and where's the best place they can go? And also you have your own podcast. Where can they go to listen to your podcast? Oh, well, thank you very much. Definitely check me out on CNN and at The Daily Beast. Follow me on Twitter at Matt K. Lewis. And uh, check out my podcast on iTunes. It's called Matt Lewis and the News. Also a child of the 80s. I love yes. the reference. <laughs> totally. It's Matt, thank square. you so much. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. This is Gail Trotter, host of Right in D.C. You're right in D.C. with Gail Trotter.